we have reached the portion of Acts that has a very Lord of the Rings feel to it. And here's what I mean. If you were to ask my wife, Tori, uh, if she loves Lord of the Rings, she would vehemently say no. Um, she cannot stand Lord of the Rings, and the reason why, she claims that the Lord of the Rings movies, they're just nothing but people walking and people talking. <laughs> and I always, when she says that, I always wonder, like, did you actually see these movies? There's like war and all sorts of stuff happening. But, but there is something to that where there's a lot of dialogue, there's a lot of traveling um, throughout, and um, Acts kind of feels this way right now. Like we're in a portion of Acts where there's a lot of walking and a lot of talking because there's not as much action as there was at the very beginning of the book. And so where we're at in Acts, there's a lot of dialogue, a lot of traveling, but of course, in the same way that's true of Lord of the Rings, uh, it's purposeful traveling. It's purposeful walking. It's purposeful dialogue. Um, all of it is for a purpose. I want to remind you a little bit of where we are at in the midst of this traveling and talking. Um, just in the, the past chapter, chapter 20, Paul was, uh, Paul was given a message from the Spirit that he is to go to Jerusalem and ultimately go, he's going to suffer in Jerusalem for the gospel. And so knowing this, Paul is in a town called Miletus and he calls for the Ephesian elders to meet him there. And so the elders in Ephesus, they come to him and he shares this message that the Spirit has given them, given him. And he tells them, like, this is going to be the last time that I see you. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm likely to suffer for the gospel. I don't know what's going to happen to me. And of course, they're, they're heartbroken over this. They love Paul. Paul loves them. And, and we're told that they're, they share tears together. Um, but ultimately, Paul is not going to be stopped, and so he goes to Jerusalem uh, from there. But, but we, we're told that after this, this teary um, reunion and this teary departure, like they pray for him, and then he leaves. Paul goes on in his travels to Jerusalem from Miletus. He ends up in a town called Tyre, and the same thing happens. All the disciples, all the followers of Jesus in the town of Tyre, they come together and they talk with Paul. He shares the message that the Spirit has given him. And once again, he says, this is the last time I'm going to see you. And after um, they're trying to convince him not to go to Jerusalem, it's an emotional thing. They pray for him on the beach. And then he continues on his trek towards Jerusalem. From Tyre, they end up in Caesarea, and they stay with Philip for a time. Philip is one we would know who he is from earlier in Acts. Um, and while they're there, a prophet by the name of Agabus, who also appeared earlier in Acts in chapter 11, comes to them with a message. This is what he says in chapter 21, verse 11. And coming to us, he, Agabus, took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So Agabus, being a prophet, he actually acts out his prophecy and says, he affirms what Paul already knew, which is, I am called to go suffer in Jerusalem for the gospel. And at, at hearing this, all the people that are accompanying Paul, like the previous group of people, they, they're saying, hey, um, don't go. We don't want you to go. And, and Paul says to them, why, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? And, and it's not that he's saying, stop caring for me. But you have to imagine from Paul's perspective, he, he's had a lot of emotional reunions and emotional goodbyes. 
in Miletus and Tyre. And so he says, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? He goes, I am willing to suffer. I'm willing to die, he says, in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And as they heard him say this, they're, 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 they realize that he, is, he will not be convinced not to go to Jerusalem. They say, let the will of the Lord be done. So they put the Lord's will above their own emotions and they say, hey, go off in the Lord's will. One little, little thing to note in verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, notice that, that Luke writes, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. We're reminded that Luke is the author of Acts and oftentimes we reread Acts and it's a lot of narrative and it makes it almost feel a little bit impersonal, but but Luke, we're told, when he says that we ceased, Luke was one of the people who was with Paul at this time trying to convince him not to go. And it changes the way that we read it and understand it because very clearly, Luke has a love for Paul. Paul has a love for Luke. But he recognized this is the Lord's will and so we're gonna, we're gonna send him off in this. And so that's just a small observation, but something it changes the way that we read something like that when we know it's coming from Luke's heart that way. So it's evident that it's God's will for Paul to go to Jerusalem and suffer for the gospel, but like all suffering for the gospel, it would be purposeful suffering. And knowing this is God's will, to Jerusalem he goes, which brings us to our main focus for this morning. Look with me at verse 17. When he had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. Now let's pause there for a moment. Yep, pausing right in the middle of a verse. That's okay. Roll with me. Um, Want to make sure that we're on the same page and understanding what's happening here. So they go and visit a man by the name of James. James, once again, has appeared throughout the book of Acts. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. He wrote the book of James um, towards the end of the New Testament. Um, He is also the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so they're going to see James and the elders of the Jerusalem church at this time. And we see this pattern that that hadn't been picked up for a while, but they had gotten into this pattern whenever Paul and Barnabas and others would arrive at one of the central hubs. And I say hub like Jerusalem was one of these central hubs for the gospel. Um, The church in Antioch was as well. They get back to Jerusalem and the pattern was always we're gonna share with you all that God has done in our travels. And we see that happening here and the response, as it always is, is to glorify God. Right? They're saying, they're sharing in the excitement of all that God has done. And so they, they share what God has done, they respond by glorifying God. And after hearing and glorifying God together, they respond then in this way. Picking up again in verse 20. And they said to him, you see, brother, How many thousands there are among all the Jews of those who have believed. They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So a couple of important things to note here. First, is that there are thousands of Jewish believers in Jerusalem at this time. 
No doubt stemming from the gospel movement we saw at the start of Acts up until this point. And we're told that they are zealous for the law. Here's where an important distinction needs to be made. These Jews are not the same Jews that made up the Judaizers from chapter 15. You may or may not remember them and what they were saying, but in response to the gospel going to the Gentiles, who anybody who's a non-Jew, in chapter 15, these Judaizers, they came and they said, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So they're making a very strong declaration of salvation that unless someone is circumcised, unless someone who follows the law, they cannot be saved. They too were zealous for the law but they wrongly viewed it as a means for salvation. These Jews in chapter 21, they are genuine followers of Jesus and they they don't view the law as a means for salvation. They believe that faith in Jesus alone is what brings us salvation. But they still hold to the Jewish ceremonial laws. The problem is that the Judaizers have been telling these Jews that Paul opposes Moses and the customs of the law which is a blatant lie. And it isn't the first time that this lie has come up in the book of Acts. And it even goes back to Jesus' time because he was also accused of opposing Moses and the law on occasion. And all of this is important to know because these Jews are believers with a background. They're believers with a background. The concept is simple. Um, Whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, we all have a background Things that we have grown up learning, experiencing that, that inform how we live today, inform how we respond to certain things. Like we all have a, a background of, of experience and upbringing. In the case of uh, a follower of Jesus, like we, if you were a follower of Jesus, you are a believer with a background. Like the way that you were brought up in your home or in the church, it informs how you live today. That's just how it works. For these Jews... They're believers with a background. Their background just happened to be in the law. And it led them to have a zeal for the law. And so in light of this background and the lies from the Judaizers, James and company are going to give Paul some instructions that sound a little bit like off the wall if we didn't know their background. So, but we recognize that they have purpose. Okay, check this out in verse 23. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they say they have been told about you. But that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed... We have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple and giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Yeah, at face value, that sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it? Some of the instructions that James, it's like, why is he saying this? What does this even mean? Here's what's going on. Four of the men that came with Paul were under what's called a Nazarite vow. Um, Nazarite vow comes from the Old Testament law. You don't need to know all the details of it. Here's the gist. 
A Nazarite vow is a vow that um, a, someone who um, wants, they, they want to, for a time, give themselves over for special service to the Lord. This is not something that, at times, this was for a lifetime, but most often this is something that would take place for a set period of time. And so four of these men, for a set period of time, took what's called the Nazarite vow. Um, and if you're familiar with the, the story of Samson in the Old Testament, Samson was known for his long hair. Um, when you are under a Nazarite vow, you let your hair grow out. And so when we see these instructions about shaving heads, it's because in order to conclude your time under the Nazarite vow, one of the things that you would do is you would then shave your head. And there would be some sacrifices that would happen at the end of this time as well. So several of these men are under the Nazarite vow, which is underneath the law. And to appeal to the Jewish believer's zeal for the law, James gives three sets of instructions. To Paul, to his companions, and it's a, more of a reminder of the previous instructions that he gave to the Gentile believers. So first he tells Paul and his companions, uh, purify yourselves. Why does he say this? Because they've spent a lot of time with Gentiles, again, non-Jews, which would make them, according to Jewish law, ceremonially unclean. And so they say, even though that's not a reality, um, God says, do not call something common that he has made to be clean, but still, he says, purify yourselves, you've been with the Gentiles. So that's the first thing. Secondly, says to his companions who have taken the Nazarite vow, make, sac make the necessary sacrifices and shave your heads at the conclusion of your time period of the vow. And with that, if you notice, James and company actually tells Paul, hey, uh, you pay for their expenses. The expenses of these men to have their heads shaven and the sacrifices that they would need to make, you pay for them. I don't know about you. I don't, somebody tell me to pay for somebody else's services. I don't know. But the reason why they're telling Paul to do this is because it would, it would, it would be an act of piety. It would be an act of reverence. It would show them, it would show to the Jews, Paul really cares about the law so much that he actually paid for these guys to fulfill the law in a sense. And then lastly, for Paul and his companions, at the, at the end of the purification time, which would have been seven days, it says, present yourself at the temple to be approved. We see that in verse 27. So these are the instructions that are given to Paul and those with him, but previous instructions given to Gentiles who have come to faith in Jesus are also brought up here. And all of these um, different instructions with the Gentiles, they, they deal with the Old Testament dietary laws and laws about sexual immorality and idolatry which might feel a little bit out of place, like why are we talking about instructions for the Gentiles? But there's a common theme here. These Jewish believers are believers, again, with a background. Their background has led them to have a zeal for the law. These instructions are given to Paul, his companions, and the Gentiles in order to meet these Jewish believers where they're at in their faith, so not to offend them or put stumbling blocks before them. And this is where we bring the application home to us. Our focus this morning is not the fine details of James's instructions as if we need to follow them today, but the heart behind the instructions. What James tells Paul to do is not about reaching non-believers for the gospel, but preserving fellowship between believers who are united in the gospel. 
It's not about here, like so much of Acts has to do with reaching others for the gospel. That's not necessarily the case here. The focus is on the church, those who already do know the gospel. It has everything to do with the rights and the freedoms that we have in Christ and what we do with them. And this speaks to us in several ways. Firstly, as followers of Jesus, we are free to enjoy all things that do not directly compromise God and his word. This is a foundational principle that we just simply need to understand. When we say that we are free, like we have freedom in Christ because of what he has done on the cross for us, when we've come to believe and trust in him, that freedom means a number of things. First and foremost, it means that we are free from the bondage of sin. That's the, the first and most important thing to say that we are, we are free in Christ. It means that we do not bear the eternal penalty for our sin. No, no more, because Jesus stood in our place. He died on the cross on our behalf. He paid that penalty. So we are free from the bondage of sin that way. Now in this life, we still deal with the effects of sin. We still struggle with sin. But in eternity, there will be no sin. And so he's first and foremost freed us from the bondage of sin. Freedom in Christ also means that we can freely enjoy anything and everything that God has given us and do so in a way that honors him. He's given us all these things. It means that we can freely enjoy them and enjoy him through them. So as long as that, the object or activity of our enjoyment doesn't go against what God has called us to in Scripture. But this freedom also comes with being relieved of the burden of feeling like we have to do certain things to please or earn anything from God. And this is where the law comes back into view. Paul spends a lot of time in the New Testament talking about how followers of Jesus are no longer under the Old Testament law. For example, he plainly says in Romans 7, 6, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, referring to the law, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Once again, referring to the law. So we are released from the burden of the law to freely follow Jesus. The Jewish believers in Jerusalem, they were free from the law, yet they still had a zeal for it and followed these ceremonial laws. While this was not inherently a sin, their adherence to the law prevented them from fully experiencing their freedom in Christ. Sure, they can follow the ceremonial laws with a heart of honoring the Lord, and I'm sure that they did. But submitting ourselves to anything that God has freed us from or released us from is still a self-restriction of freedom. Like they were free from the law. Like God has released them from the law, and they went back to it. They were self-restricting their own freedom. Returning to anything that he has freed us from is a self-restriction. Now, it's pretty obvious that we're, we're far enough removed from the first century that our struggle isn't going to be feeling like we need to adhere to the Old Testament laws. But do we not make up our own kind of laws that we need to adhere to? Certain things that we feel like we need to do to please God and follow his will that aren't explicit in Scripture, but, but they come from our own experiences and upbringing. Because remember, we're believers with a background 
just like them. Their background with the law led them to their zeal for the law and feeling that they needed to continue to follow it even after following Jesus. Is there something similar for you? Have we placed additional laws on ourselves or perhaps on others? We should be aware of this in ourselves so that we don't restrict our own freedom, but we must also be aware of this in those around us as we interact with them. And this is where Paul's example comes in and leads us to our second takeaway. At times, we are called to lay down our freedom for the sake of those who have not yet fully grasped that freedom. There are those who have not fully grasped their freedom in Christ. And so where some of us have, at times we need to lay down our rights and freedoms for those who have not yet fully understood that. This is exactly what Paul did. These Jewish believers, they zealously followed the ceremonial laws for reasons that we don't fully know. But either way, they didn't have a full grasp on their freedom in Christ. Knowing this, Paul doesn't say, well, I'm not under the law. I'm not doing that. I'm not following these. I'm not paying for them to shave their heads. I'm not paying for their sacrifice. I don't need to do this. He didn't say that. Instead, he willingly listened. He willingly listened to them. He he willingly subjected himself to the ceremonial laws in order to win them over and to not offend them. He didn't have to do this. He chose to. Paul is someone who certainly walks the walk and since he wrote the majority of the New Testament, he also talks the talk. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you would. Just a couple books to the right. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Uh, the Corinthian church is one who struggled mightily with their freedom in Christ. In fact, they often fell in a place of abusing their freedom in Christ. And this was in a number of different areas of life, but one of the ways that they abused their freedom is, is the fact that many of them came, so Corinth was a, is, a, is a hub for idol worship. And so many, their background, believers with a background, their background for many of them is idolatry, idol worship and temples. And some of them realizing that the, the food that is offered in these temples for sacrifices, like it's food. Like there's not, these idols aren't real. It's, it, so for them to eat food that's offered in these temples, it's not a big deal. And this is a foreign concept to us. But what would happen is there were some who were younger in their faith that did not grasp this concept. And so there were those who were eating food off previously offered to idols in the temple. And they were doing this without really thinking about those who would see that and really be affected by it. And so on the heels of Paul acknowledging these idols aren't actually real, eating food offered to idols, it's not going to do anything. He says in verse 7, he says, however, not all possess this knowledge. In other words, not everyone understands their freedom this way. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat And no better off if we do. And here it is. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Weak here is is in reference to someone who is immature in their faith. It's not necessarily a bad thing. They're just not strong in their faith yet. That's what weak means here. 
Verse 10, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Okay, so this is a very simple concept. Paul knows that he has the right to do many things, such as eating meat that was offered during an idol sacrifice because it holds no ultimate significance. But he is willing to lay down that right for the sake of those who aren't yet mature enough in their faith to understand that. He actually says that causing someone to stumble by ignoring an area of weakness for them is not only a sin against them, but a sin against Jesus. So like this is a big deal. He continues to talk about this at length all the way through chapter 9, and I want to highlight his words beginning in verse 19. He says, For though I am free from all, talking about his freedom in Christ, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, referring to Gentiles, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Paul's motive in all of this is to help people know Jesus for the first time or to know him more. And in the context of Acts chapter 21, we're talking about people who do know Jesus, but they're just in a place of immaturity in their faith. And I do want to point out, by the way, that when we're talking about people who are mature in their faith and maybe those who are immature in their faith or or weak, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, we're not talking about a matter of superiority, We're not talking about better than or less than here. We're simply talking about matter of fact. For example, um, there are many of you in this room who are older than me. That's just a matter of fact. That doesn't mean that you're better than me, so don't think that. Also doesn't mean that I'm worse off than you. It's just we're different ages. The majority of this room, unfortunately, it's a matter of fact that you are taller than me. Why are you laughing? I'm 5'8", maybe on a good day. Anyway, that doesn't make me inferior to you just because I look up to you sometimes. It's just a matter of fact. We're different heights. At the same time, everyone here in this room, we are at different places spiritually. Some of you are more mature than others. That isn't inherently a bad thing. It's just, again, it's a matter of fact. It's just where we're at. And of course, it does need to be said that there there are many other examples of rights that we might lay down outside of food offered to idols. I mean, that's one that we really have a hard time relating to, but this principle of the weaker brother and those stronger in faith, like this has a lot of application. And so just one brief personal example that that I was reminded of as I was thinking about this this concept. 
Um, the church that I grew up in, and some of you, um, when I say grew up in, it's really the one that I came to faith in. I didn't grow up in this church. It was a, it was a smaller church, and uh, some of you might relate to this if you've grown up in a church like this. Or, um, but this is a church that, um, that holds that the King James Version is the, the one translation of the Bible that like, you don't go away from that. King James, is that's the one. And um, I actually came into this church, didn't have a KJV, and they always would joke with me about it, but they were almost kind of like saying, you need to get a KJV? Okay. So I got a KJV. Ended up coming to faith in this church and um, ended up coming here to the chapel, and I switched over to the ESV translation as we use here. Um, I don't agree that the King James Version is the only version that we need to use. But they felt very strongly about that. They invited me back to preach. This was years ago at this point. And so when I came back to preach, which translation of the Bible do you think I came with? It wasn't the ESV. Because they felt that that like they felt that the King James Version was it for them. And I don't mean to harp on this too much, especially if you know people here are a little bit sensitive to that and come from that background, but we simply, I do not believe that to be the truth, that the KJV is the only one. But think about it. How would it have looked if I came in there with the ESV and I preached out of the ESV? I, that would have been offensive to them. I would have been completely disregarding where they're at and just kind of what they believe. And so I came and I preached with the KJV. Why would I not? I, I laid down a very simple right of mine for their sake. Because I wanted to avoid a stumbling block. I wanted to avoid offending them. Here, Paul provides for us a good example of how to lay down our rights for the sake of others well. But I do want to point out that our ultimate example comes from Jesus. Think about it. And I think of Philippians chapter 2. Jesus had, being God, like he has his throne, he has rights, he has, like everything is his. And yet in humility, what did he do? He stepped down from his throne, from his rights for a time. He took on flesh so that we may know him. Like he is the ultimate, like we see this example in Paul, but Jesus is the ultimate example of one who had his rights and he above everybody else has the right to hold tightly to his rights. And yet in humility, he laid them down for our sake so that we could know him. And if he has done this for us, if he has willingly laid down his rights for a time so that we may know him, we can certainly lay down our rights for others to know him more. We can do the same and follow in his footsteps. This second principle here is from the perspective of those who are more mature in their faith. But there is the other side of the coin. What about the one who is in a place of infancy or maybe immaturity in their faith? It's where our third and final takeaway comes in. It is God's will that we would grow in our faith and not remain where we are. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 plainly says, for this is the will of God. Anytime you see that in scripture, that should perk your ears up. What's God's will for my life? For this is the will of God, right? Your sanctification, which is just the, the theological term for spiritual growth. It is God's will that we would grow in our faith. That we would, those of us who would know, that know Jesus, that we would continue to mature that way. This is true for every follower of Jesus. But it bears a different weight 
for the weaker brother or sister that is restricting their own freedom and perhaps in the process seeking to restrict the freedom of others. And this is why it is so important to know who we are and where we are at in our faith. It would be naive for us to think that, like for all of us individually, to believe that we're the mature ones and that everyone else around us, they're the weaker brother or sister. Because in any given body of Christ, you're going to have those who are mature in their faith and those who just aren't there yet. And we're no different. Which means that there are some here who are the weaker brother or sister that Paul is talking about. The question is, are we self-aware enough to know whether that's us or not? Are we self-aware enough to know, I mean, we all know that we need to grow in our faith, but are we aware if, if we are in fact the weaker brother or sister? Because if we don't realize when we're the weaker brother or sister and believe that it's everyone else, there are natural consequences to this. First, we're just going to remain in that place of immaturity because it's a blind spot for us. We don't think we need to grow. So they're the weaker one, not me. I'm strong in my faith. To, be blind, to have a blind spot like that means that, well, we're going to remain in that place of immaturity if we don't recognize that's us. Second, we're going to continue to restrict our own freedom, feeling like we need to adhere to certain laws that we have placed on ourselves, not the ones that God has given us. But third, and this is at its worst, we take these laws, we take these things that are not explicitly from God in Scripture, but we have a strong conviction on as necessary for worship and life inside and outside of the church. We take these laws and we place them not only on ourselves, but then we start to place them on others. And when they aren't doing what we think they should be doing or meeting that standard, we condemn them for wearing the wrong thing, for singing the wrong songs, for spending time with the wrong people, and so on and so forth. We condemn them. See, we've been released from the law. We are given freedom to follow God in many different ways. Following God's will, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but following God's will is not some narrow walkway. It's not some rigid walkway. It's, it's like a playground that we, freely to play, that we can freely play on within its bounds. Because we've been released from the law, we have God's will, and there are so many things, like different ways that we can worship and, and seek to honor the Lord on this playground as opposed to some narrow walkway. But what ends up happening is in our immaturity, we try to reverse this, and we take the ways that we are free to worship God, and we treat them as law. Going back to the very thing that we have been freed from. So before we insist on our own way and push that on other people, we better be prepared to, to examine, is this God's way? We've got to be ready to ask ourselves, is this my way or is this God's way? Because if not, we are showing everyone that we are in fact the weaker brother or sister. And in the deceptiveness of pride, we can't even see it. And that's really what all this comes down to. 
for those who are mature in their faith and those who are immature but growing in their faith, it's a matter of nurturing pride or nurturing humility. Because the one who is mature in their faith, they have a choice to walk in maturity or humility. The one who is immature in their faith can walk in pride or humility. Pride looks like this in the mature. Someone who is mature in their faith and recognizes that someone has, that there's a weaker brother and, or sister. And so like it would be prideful for Paul, for example, to recognize these Jews that are zealous for the law and choose not to follow these ceremonial laws. It would have been prideful for him to say, nope, I know that I've got this freedom. I'm gonna exercise my freedom and I'm going to ignore them. It'd be prideful for us to do that. It would have been prideful for Paul to do this. Pride in the immature looks like being unwilling to examine ourselves, to recognize where we are at. And the way that that manifests itself is we then start to place these laws that we've placed on ourselves on other people. Pride makes us do this. But there is a humble path. For the mature in their faith, we've already seen the example of Paul and of course we have the example of Jesus. The, one, the path of humility says, I know that I've got this right and I've got this freedom, but I'm willing to lay it down for a time for the sake of others. For the one who is immature in their faith, there's still a path of humility. It's a willingness to examine self, to say, am I actually, am I possibly the weaker brother, the weaker sister? Could this perhaps be me? And humility then says, I'm gonna start to do something about that. It's not wrong that I'm in this place, right? We all grow at different rates, but I'm gonna now do something about this. And if we're being honest, it's difficult to admit that when we're, we're in a place of immaturity. Sometimes it's not that we are immature as a whole in our faith, but maybe we act in an immature way. I know that I've been there. But it's hard to admit that. Whether we're being immature in a moment or whether we're just immature in our faith, it's hard to admit that. Because we have to fight the lies of the enemy that says that we are less than because of that. The reality is, again, that's just where everyone is different in their path of following Jesus. Everyone grows at different rates. So it's difficult to admit, wow, I might be the weaker brother or sister. It's even more difficult then to start doing the hard work of growing out of that place. Because just as when we are physically growing up, we experience growing pains, the same is true spiritually. When we are growing in our faith, there's often growing pains that comes with that. John chapter 15, Jesus talks about how um, those of us who follow him, we, we bear fruit, but God prunes us so that more fruit may be born. That's a painful process, to be pruned so that we may grow. But it's necessary. As difficult as this is, it is necessary for us, not only as individuals meant to walk in the freedom of Christ, but for those around us who need help learning how to do that well. It's a matter of preserving unity and fellowship. And again, it's God's will that we would grow, no matter where we are or who we are. And if it's God's will, we can have confidence that he's going to provide for us, that he's going to equip us for it. And if you look around, he's given us one another, He's given us his church to grow together in this unity. Let's be people who lean into that truth. Let's pray.
God, you are a gracious God. We're grateful that, that you know our hearts and that you see us exactly where we are, whether we are maturing in our faith or whether we are in a place of immaturity and need to grow. Thank you that you see us where we are, that you love us where we are, but you love us too much to leave us there. Lord, your word plainly tells us that it is your will that we would grow. Would we be people that grow? Would we be people who can walk the path of humility and recognize where we are at in our faith? That perhaps that we are the weaker brother or sister and that perhaps we are self-restricting ourselves even after you have released us from the law. Will you give us grace and show us the error of our ways? And for those who are more mature in their faith, would you give them the eyes to see those around them who do not fully grasp that freedom and, and give them the humility to lay down their rights and freedoms for their sake. God, give us wisdom, all for the sake of your church. You say that you're going to build your church. Would we each play our part and our role well and do what you've called us to in humility with, of course, Jesus as our ultimate example. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. This has been a message from the chapel. Thanks for joining us today. For more information about the chapel or any of our campuses, including Akron, Green, Wadsworth, Kenmore, Cuyahoga Falls, Nordonia, and Medina, please go to our website at thechapel.life.